Welcome to the History of Networking at the Network Collective. This week, we are sitting with Dino Ferranici to talk about the history of the Locator Identifier Separation Protocol, or LISP. So grab a big pile of cookies, that's just for Yvonne, and something to drink, and join us for a deep dive into the history of networking. Hey, Dino, I'm glad to see you. I don't think you were in London, right? Or were you? I didn't see you if you yeah, were. Yeah, I was there. Yep. You were there. I didn't. I missed you somehow. Five days in London and I didn't see you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and, um, you know, what where you got started in Lisp and, and how it came about to be or, or however you want to approach the story. Sure. Um, let's see. I started my career a really, really long time ago. It's, it's three decades. <laughs> so I'm showing you my age. Um, I started with the NSA doing operating system stuff and then went into networking quickly after that and worked for 3Com and then joined Cisco in the really early days. The early in 91 is when I joined Cisco. I was there, I tell people like 22 minus five years. So I left in 99 to work, to, to go work at Procket and I was there for five years. And then Cisco acquired at an elephant sale value um, Procket in 2004. So I came back and worked on data center products. Originally I worked on iOS from 91 to 99. I probably worked on, oh, I'm gonna say probably two dozen releases, feature releases. Uh, and then when I came back, I worked on NXOS. So I did mostly um, a software engineer by trade and technologist networking guy by passion and spent a lot of um, time doing routing protocols, um, early days of EIGRP, IS to IS uh, for multi-protocol, worked on IP multicast for about 10 years. Um, and then um, when I came back, focused on data center stuff. What was interesting about what we did um, with NXOS is the Procket OS, which was a modular um, OS we brought into um, Cisco. And because at that time we were building a fiber channel switch, a layer two switch and a layer three router. And so where do you pick and choose these pieces from different parts of Cisco? So we decided to write L2 from scratch, use the SAN OS operating system for the fiber channel stuff and use Procket OS for the layer three. So I spent uh, 2004 to 2012 working on that OS, doing uh, various things, routing protocols, operating system support. Uh, OTV was one of the proprietary things we worked on. And then I got into Lisp um, in r roughly the 2006 timeframe. And that's, and, and that's what we'll probably start this conversation on the, the history of LISP starting back in 2006. Okay, cool. So I seem to remember, it probably goes back farther, but I seem to remember a meeting in Washington, D.C. or something like that as like one of the first meetings we had about LISP and there was a LISP mailing list inside of Cisco. I don't remember much before that. So go back and tell us, you know, like what was the original purpose or what was going on that uh, caused the whole LISP thing to come out and to start thinking about this? Yeah, back in the fall of 2006, October 2006, the IEB had a routing workshop in Amsterdam and the goal there was to look at routing architectures in general. At that point, you know, IPv6 was decided. We had a header format. We had a data plane. But we, we saw that the routing architecture for IPv4 and IPv6 wasn't very different. We'd still use IGPs and BGPs, longest match routing, all that kind of stuff. But what, what the worry there was is how address assignment would be done for IPv6. And would we burn 
too much of the routing tables in the core. And the routing tables were growing in the core quite rapidly. We're on an exponential growth. And so we were trying to figure out solutions on how we could slow the growth. Multi-homing was increasing. Um, people were getting provider assigned addresses and they would have to then allocate or advertise into the other service provider, very more specific routes of that allocation provider. And so the routing table was just um, exploding. And the IPv6 default allocation policy was provider independent addresses. That means every site would have an entry in every core router and we were worried about the growth of that. And so we were wondering if it was gonna be an arms race of just build more hardware, sell more line cards, that sort of thing. And um, so that was basically, we thought if we could separate location from ID and fix this really semantic bug we have with the IP address of who and where is the same thing in the same 32 bits or 128 bits, that maybe we could solve the routing table problem. Now, the, yeah. this, was, this was in the days before overlays were actually the cool name and nobody, um, nobody coined the phrase overlay and underlay and how they interact with, we, with each other. Um, but, you know... Um, as, as we continue this um, show, I'll be able to show you why people decided to call them overlays and why they were good in different use cases. Yeah. So as I recall, there was a question about two things going on about that time frame. The first was CIDR was really starting to take hold. Uh, not well, like the whole idea of having random block links and the race to slash 24 was on. So everybody was starting to advertise slash 24s. So the table size was just ramping way up. I mean, we started out like 100,000 routes in a core router in the DFZ and we were like at 200,000, 300,000. It was happening so fast. Everybody was freaking out. And the other thing was we had just moved from from not really just moved but we had moved from fast cash to ceph and the fib table sizes were ramping up with the with the routing table size because they're directly correlated because you know every route you have is essentially a fib table entry so then you have all this huge ceph tables growing up and then you have these line cards with limited dram or a memd or a memcache or whatever trying to trying to handle these ever larger tables. So it got to this point where we were like, wait, we just can't keep going this path forever. If we continue with exponential growth, we can't exponentially grow the memory size on the line cards for switching, for carrying these FIP tables. Yeah, I mean, that's that's right. And, and we always distinguish in many router platforms that the rib was cheap memory because it was basically in somewhat commodity silicon, you know, meaning, you know, Intel-based processors or Motorola processors at the time. And FIB, FIB memory was very expensive because it was close to the hardware. There were, you know, on-chip SRAMs or off-chip DRAMs. TCAMs came in later. And uh, we couldn't size that, that hardware um, quick enough as the growth was coming. So it was, uh, it was quite challenging. Um, and this is kind of motivated Lisp to say, let's use a cache because we looked, I mean, Jeff Houston did a study. Um, I forgot when it was, but it was at the time when there was 500,000 routes in the routing table. And he saw that if you looked at any core router, that only 10% of the routes were being used. So why don't we just have a cache of 50,000 routes rather than keeping 500,000 inexpensive memory when they're not being used. So that's really what motivated Lisp that let's use, um, let's use the resources in the router when we need them and go get them when we need them because we really don't have n squared any to any we want to have n squared any to any connectivity 
of all hosts on the internet, but we, we realize um, that doesn't happen. And if, if you now fast forward into 2018, we find out that most of the flows are going from cell phones to the top six popular sites in the world. And, you know, we know who those right. quote monopolies are. So, you know, um, in, in fact, there was just recent discussion saying that um, people don't even care anymore that they have full routing tables because if they have partial routing cables and packets go through these routers and they don't get phone calls and people have connectivity, it's because the flows are very well defined now where packets go. And, you know, yeah. In fact, in fact Jeff Houston just did some uh, articles on Circle ID and on his blog over at AP, APNIC and stuff about how it's actually reshaping this traffic flow differential is reshaping the internet itself. Like transit providers are struggling to survive because these top six or eight places that destinations are all actually reaching out to the edge and building direct connections all the way to the edge. So therefore it's like the transit providers are like, they have nobody transiting traffic anymore. And I so mean, it, you know. it makes perfect sense because uh, people want to give end users the best user experience. Yeah. So they want them on their network um, as long as possible. So that's why they go and they have data centers at a lot of you know points of presence all over the place. Now, of course, if you get a packet from a user and it's not your customer, you do hot potato routing, right? You try to get it off right away to minimize the amount of resources you use, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of the background. So the solution was this concept called LISP, so Localator Identity Separation. So where did this come from? You know, continuing the history, how did we get to there from this problem set? Yeah, so we said if all the addresses on the edge um, don't have to be routed by the core, uh, then we can reduce the size of the core. And the idea was is that these EID addresses would be regular IP addresses that are assigned to hosts, just like they are today. They map into DNS entries um, for server-based addresses, uh, but they can be anything. They can be opaque numbers. They can be, uh, we, we've done so many um, customer trials in the past. They could be FedEx tracking numbers. They could be VIN numbers. They can be hashes of public keys. And now we can do all these sorts of things with these addresses and not worry about not the non-aggregatability of these of such opaque addresses in the core. So EIDs would be provider independent and actually user defined. And the RLOCs, which they map to, one or if an EID is multi-home that has one or more oh, RLOCs. Jordan, Jordan, routing I'm missing it. Jordan's supposed to be changing the color of his LEDs. <laughs> All right. EIDs are green and RLOCs are red. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Dino. I just had to throw that in there. No worries. So when these EIDs are multi-home, they have an RLOC set, and those RLOCs are basically assigned out of provider assigned space, so they are aggregatable. And it's only the RLOCs that are uh, routable on the internet. So you can, you know, if if my house and Russ's house want to talk to each other, I want to print to his printer, he wants to access my movie database, my media database or whatever, we could actually do this with the 192.168 addresses because they're never seen in the core. And because we use encapsulation, the outer headers are always the RLOCs and the inner headers are the EIDs. And so fundamentally, that's all there is to LISP. It's called traditionally or, or uh, affectionately called map and in-cap because um, a LISP router gets a packet that's built by a host. It looks at the destination address. It thinks it's an EID. It looks it up in a mapping system. It gets a set of RLOCs. It decides which RLOC to use, and it prepends a header with that RLOC. And now it allows you to have V4 and V4, V6 and V4, all four combinations, even Mac in, in V4 or V6 if you want to build L2 overlays. 
But of course, you know, on the capital I internet and to make things scalable, we definitely want to encourage people to use layer three overlays, right? Yeah, well, we've been fighting that for years. Yeah, <laughs> yes, we have. No more layer two. Layer two is designed for a single segment. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> And a single segment should is physical and not virtual. That's, right? that's exactly right. Not right. virtual. Okay. Well, you know, there's been there, there there's been data center applications where people said, like running vMotion from VMware, they said, well, to be able to move a VM from one part of the data center to the other, you must have L2. You must stretch your subnets. But that's that's its solution to what their requirement was. Their requirement was not to change the IP address. Right. Well, if you can move an IP address from one part of the network to the other, and it's over a layer three boundary, then you can use layer three overlays to do the same thing. You do not have to extend the subnet, right? Our well, I've heard some people say we have to preserve our Mac, our, our, our ARP cache. Right. <laughs> like, right. what? <laughs> yes. Is memory an issue for anything anymore? You know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, flow routers or, or session-based routing is coming back now. And since they're all implemented in servers, people don't mind having a 5 million routes because it's in memory. We talked about RIB versus FIB, expensive right. versus inexpensive memory. Well, now 5 million RIB routes in a server is cheap memory, right? So, yeah, yeah. So, so going back to the history, what, I mean, why not DNS? That seems to be the obvious question that someone would ask. I mean, why not DNS? Just because that, again, that's something that somebody who understands internet routing might say, well, you have this distributed database. It's already cached. Why, why, not, why not glom onto that? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So DNS is an application directory. It's a directory that's used for applications to translate names into addresses. Um, should that same directory be used for routing. Now, if you do a DNS lookup, you have to use routing. If routing has to use DNS, architecturally, this is a circular dependency. So architecturally, this is not a, a good idea. The next problem with DNS is, is that the names are actually ASCII strings. They're hierarchical. This is fine. This is wonderful. But if you want to break up address allocation on a bit boundary, like we thought about using DNS as a mapping system, but then you would have to have a 1.0.1, 1 128 times if you wanted any branching in this DNS hierarchy. So we thought that the naming system wouldn't be right. We considered using DNS, the protocol, not on port 53 for the mapping system, but we thought that the other things we needed from this directory was quick updates and security. And at the time we did Lisp, it was hard to update DNS. We have dynamic DNS now, but it happens more in human time than in, in router time. And, you know, because right. we have this level of indirection now, you can keep your, you know, Russ can keep his EID. He can move around and just keep rebinding to new RLOCs as he attaches the new parts of the network. And we want those handoffs to be relatively fast. And so DNS wouldn't be able to give us that sort of performance, you know, and these okay. are things that um, Paul Macapetris has said too about, um, you know, he said if he could do it all over again, he would look at a mapping database system that's used at the network layer to, to do DNS. So when we, when we actually move around, we're just not client systems, we can be server systems and we can be reachable. So the idea with Lisp now is that we don't need to touch DNS. Rust.com could always map to an EID. He could roam around. That EID never changes. And if he's running an HTTP server, say on his cell phone, and I'm connected to him, and say he's taking pictures or movies and I want to stay connected, I want to keep the TCP connection up, I can, even though the R are changing. 
Um, and I could always discover him because his DNS name will always map to that same static EID. Sometimes static is a feature and not a bug, right? Uh, <laughs> now, now, the now security that's you don't except in the case of routes. Yeah. I was going to say, that, <laughs> yeah. that's not, not a common saying there, static. No, <laughs> So now a lot of people, the security people say that these EIDs are actually, if Rust.com always maps to the same EID, I can really track Rust all the time, and that's not good. So how can we obfuscate his EID? So, you know, between two, an ITR and an ETR, one that encapsulates and one decapsulates, you can do Diffie-Hellman exchange of keys and do symmetric encryption, and we obfuscate and encrypt all the data of including the inner header that the host built all the way through the payload. So we have ways of doing this. Um, we can encrypt the control plane packets. So nobody knows that Dino wants to talk to Russ. And, and really, if we, if it's a hash of a public key, we could actually, Russ can authenticate himself. Russ can tell the mapping system, I'm going to sign this map register message because now I'm on this LTE interface, depending on where he is in the world, and this Wi-Fi interface, and the mapping system will say, yes, it is Russ, and yes, he's allowed to connect, he's allowed to use those mappings, and maybe it's the right time of day that he's allowed to use those, and maybe he wants to be available for anybody, but maybe he just wants his family to talk to him on the weekends, and Dino to only talk to him on the weekdays, right? And so these sort of things, you know, the internet was all, it has always been, you could send a packet from anywhere to anywhere. Now, that is a feature, but it's turned into a security bug, right? Because if I want to launch a thousand, oh, I shouldn't say this on the air. I, sh I can launch a thousand VMs across all the three cloud providers, send moderate rate pings to Russ's link at his house. I don't even know the IP address of Russ's link, but let me just scan two to the 32. I can do that very easily. And I could DOS attack his link. He's not asking for that traffic. He's getting it and he's getting a denial right. of service attack. But with a mapping system, I mean, remember the old days, um, Don and Russ, when we had route filters and when we ran distant vector IGP protocols, if you didn't advertise a route to somebody, there was no way they could send packets to you. That was great because the packets were dropped early, close to the source. Now, because policies are complicated, you have to put everything in routing and then you have to put ACLs all over the place. This is totally ridiculous. Companies have made have gone IPO on this feature, right? You know, so with Lisp, I can ask the mapping system, I want to talk to Russ, tell me the locators and, and the mapping system says, sorry, it's Saturday afternoon. You don't, you don't get his locators. So that means I can't <laughs> access them. Right now, if I get his locators and I start DOS attacking him, maybe on um, HTTP and not SSH, he could actually then tell me that he's moved, do a new lookup, find a new set of locators, and I don't get any locators anymore. Or he gives me locators of a honeypot or a third party where the packets get encapsulated to. And then, so there's lawful intercept that could be put there. There's, you can honeypot and drop packets. There's all kinds of things you can do, you know. So, so going back to the original, like, so this idea came about. So let's talk through, like, how did it get to, so you were working at Cisco at the time. So was there an initial implementation in Cisco and in X, or I mean, where did you take it, or XE? So where did you take it from there to actually bring it forward? I know that there's a history in the ITF draft space and things like that as well that we can get into. Right. So I'm taking it going from 2006 to 2007. We spent 2007 and 2008 in the routing research group of the IRTF. And that's where all the solutions were being looked at. And by the time 2009 came around, 
I think the research group decided that locator ID separation was the way to do it. And that was lacking in the current internet architecture. So now there were solutions that were just focusing on locator ID separation, ILNP, um, remember the eight plus eight and GSE those yeah. days. Right, and, yeah. and it's funny because ILA now is bringing back some of those ideas. The ILA is a much more, much newer um idea of using IPv6 only uh, with locator ID separation. But so 2007 and eight, we did all this stuff in the um, IRTF. And then the IRTF made a recommendation to not change routers, to, to just change the host, bite the bullet. I mean, at that point in time, we thought it was easier to upgrade routers than it was. Remember the old days where it took too yeah. long to upgrade operating systems? Now it's completely yeah. the opposite. Now it takes forever to upgrade routers right. and I mean, you upgrade your cell phone, you know, yeah. every year or whatever, right? Yeah, this is this is the genesis of DHCPv6 versus Slack argument as well, right? Oh, you yeah. can't change host. You can't change host. I can change routers. But as it turns out, it's actually easier to change a million hosts in many cases than it is to change the Two or three hundred thousand routers, or whatever it is, at the internet core. Yeah, in the that, that's quite a. It's, it's an amazing statement, but I, it's absolutely true. I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so in those days, like the two thousand eight timeframe, ILMP was let's put the intelligence. In, funny, let's put the intelligence in the host. Let's have the routers just move packets fast, um, and make them scale, add new speeds and feeds to them as new technology comes out, and that's the end-to-end -end model, the end-to-end -end principle in the the internet, right? right? Uh, of course, router vendors don't like that because then it devalues the core network. They want to put value into the network. And hence why we have so many middle boxes and load balancers and it goes on and on and on. But by 2009, we decided when that decision was made is maybe LISP should do some more engineering and that this level of indirection in routing could solve a lot of problems. And now, and I'll point out later that we have a lot of different use cases that this level of indirection gives us. But in 2009, that's when we started the LISP working group in the IETF and then started um, building a bunch of RFCs. So by-, so, by so Go ahead. Before you go there, it's actually interesting you say IRTF because a lot of people don't even know what the IRTF is. Um, I mean, I'm involved in the IRTF and you are, of course, and, you know, other people. But there's a lot of people who are listeners who are like, wait, I've heard of this IETF thing. And what is this IRTF thing? What is that? That's weird. So yeah, maybe you might want to explain that a little bit before. Well, I mean, the IRTF is um, mostly made up of a bunch of university and research groups that look at longer term things. They don't do engineering. They don't build packet formats and decide where bits go and stuff like that. They just do a lot of research on really broad ideas. Uh, I mean, the, the most recent thing is, um, you know, blockchain seems to be a sexy thing to do and everybody's looking for problems that blockchain can solve. So we have a distributed internet research group just looking at decentralized data structures that are on the network. We just spun up a QIRG, quantum internet, looking on how we can do quantum networking. So these are things that, you know, can you send a TCP packet over a quantum network today? No, how would you do that? We don't know. We were still trying to figure out how these two photons are entangle each other, right? And that sort of stuff. So you can see it's, it's advanced research, but I think the people that are involved in it want it to be applied and want it to be real. So there's network management. I mean, what, what other ones um, recently? So obviously the CFRG, um, the Crypto Forum. There's right. tons of yeah. Crypto Forum was really interesting, this particular. In London, the Crypto Forum was really interesting presentations. There's the Applied Research Networking Prize, by the way, which if you go out and look and try to, like those are always like the best papers. 
that are out there that are presented. So as a, as a, just an individual engineer, if you want to see what's going on, the applied researching prize is really, really cool in the IRTF. It's, it's a lot of useful information or potentially useful information. Yeah. So usually, you know, these things either, you know, just flutter away or they become real proposals and then working groups get based on it. Um, sometimes, you know, like ICN, the NDN, ICN has been in a research group for quite a long time. But there's, a, you know, these researchers are doing implementation. They're building test networks and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's what, yeah. that, you know, we did that in the 2007 time frame where when the, the bunch of guys at Cisco that were playing with Lisp, we decided, I, I said, I'm going to do an implementation. Uh, Dave Meyer, Daryl Lewis, and Vince Fuller would play around and build a network. And we built this um, deployment network that... Um, that we tested all this stuff. So we were really in researching mode there and we just, we just played with stuff. We, we did them on PCs. We did them on routers. You know, we tried to get other vendors involved, uh, but they were Cisco customers, um, enterprise customers, service providers, individuals who wanted to play and learn the technology, uh, university types. And um, so that's how it evolved in 2007. Uh, so, you know, we're moving along now, 2007, 2008. Let me, let me look at my, um, my notes in, <laughs> in Jordan has to change the color of his LEDs. Yeah. In the round 2000. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So, you know, when we figured out mapping cap would be a good way to solve the problem, then we said, well, how are we, how do we build a mapping system and how do we make it like really scalable? So we, we looked at a lot of different proposals. We looked at um, a link state type proposal. We looked at DHTs. We looked at something that Elliot Lear did called nerd, which why don't we just push the mappings everywhere? Could you imagine pushing every DNS entry to everybody, you know, but we said, you know, that's the way we understood things in the routing layer where BGP was a push type technology. You know, I always tell people there's really only two databases we know in the internet. There's a pull-based one and a push-based one. And the push-based one was BGP or, or all the routing protocols where you advertise these things at the edges, they go in the core, you find the shortest paths, but you always have the entire set of routes. So if you do a lookup and it misses, you're, you're sure that you can't find how to route this packet. So you just drop the packet on the floor. But the reason push could scale is because the key to this database was a power of two number and the power of two number could be aggregated. In other words, there was more specific routes on the edges. And as the advertisements came into the core, they would get coarser and coarser. So the least number of routes possible could be stored in the core. So the power of two allowed us to push at the order of 10 to the six. Have we got, I'm not sure 10 to the seventh. We could probably go from 10 to the six routes to 10 to the seventh with necessary hardware and economics and that sort of thing. But then if you look at DNS, how many DNS entries we have? I'm going to say hundreds of millions. I don't know if we have a billion entries. Like, you know, most of most of the users on the network are cell phone users that make up most of the population and, and um, sensor devices and various things. These things don't really need DNS addresses because they're really client initiated sort of things. But could you imagine pushing around? 100 million things. Well, you can't push around 100 million DNS names because, you know, a.rust.com doesn't aggregate very well, right? And yeah. so how do you, as you push the information out, how do you reduce it and be able to, um, and these are the things that ICN's trying to figure out because there's no addresses in ICN. They're all objects. 
and, you know, slash root slash rust slash slides slash list slash version one is the hierarchy. And if I want all slides from Rust, I just join slides. If I want all Lisp versions, I join something that's more specific. But do you see how this sort of thing is going to work, right? How yeah, and the, and the problem is it's not clear in ICN exactly how to build that hierarchy because not everything is that, like, you might want everything, not just slides, but all research from a particular person. Or you might want all research about a particular topic, regardless of whether it's slides or written. But then right. if you've hierarchically built based on slides... Right. You know. And anything along the hierarchy could be wildcard is what you're saying. Right. And, yeah. body, and of course, this has nothing to do with topology. Right. It's all That's about right. interest in content. Right. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that was the biggest trick, um, you know, with uh, with Lisp is trying to build a mapping system that could scale. But, you know, we had this advantage that, well, if we could map and make it pull based, because we think we're going to not only just pull destinations we want to send packets to, but what if I want to look up Russ White in quotes, you know, an ASCII string and find out GPS coordinates or find out maybe a replication list for multicast or maybe a locator path to do traffic engineering. There's all kinds of things you could put in this mapping system. And it may not just be for moving packets. It may be just something at the network layer. So, I mean, a lot of us have been firm believers that we think the network layer needs a database to do routing and addressing stuff. And the databases that we know today are, are protocols that distribute information everywhere. Well, maybe we need a Cassandra equivalent of a Facebook login or username directory down at the network layer for routing and addressing. Yeah. Okay. So you were working with these experimentals with Vince and, and Dave Meyer and stuff. Hmm. And so where did it develop from there? So you've moved from the IRTF to the IETF. Um, so you obviously have implementation, so you must have at least two to interoperate, right? Right. So we had an open source implementation that was written um, by some of the researchers um, in, um, let's see, it was Luigi, who's one of the chairs, Luigi Iannone, who's one of the chairs of um, the LISP working group, did an implementation called OpenLISP in the early days. That was interoperating with this implementation I did on NXOS. Um, and so we evolved that into an implementation that's now called Open Overlay Router, which is a list open source implementation that runs on Linux, um, Android, and WRT platforms. And the UPC guys, uh, University Polytech uh, of Catalonia uh, in Barcelona, they have also written an iOS implementation, which is about to be released soon based on OOR. So we think we can get it on most of the router, most of the host-based platforms um, and, um, um, and then, you know, um, then, you know, life moves into 2009, 2010, where we're working on internet drafts, but 2010 was a pivotal year because Cisco actually shipped products on Lisp and they shipped, you know, the encapsulator to decapsulator, the inner working function, the map server, the map resolver, that was part of the, the mapping system on iOS, iOS XE, NXOS, NXR, all four um, operating systems. And they did it on um, the ASR1K, um, the Catalyst 6K, and the Nexus 7K had hardware forwarding to it. So this was a point in history where a vendor really put a lot of R&D effort into it. And Cisco's been shipping it since then and using a lot of isolated um, use cases to, to solve the problem. 
of course, by this point, 2010, 2011 timeframe, we saw that this deploy, this pilot network we built, we're in about 30 countries now, about 300 nodes. People were testing open Lisp, OR, and um, OR back then was called Lisp Mob, but because we were building it for a mobile platform only. So now we were going to a situation where, you know, a bunch of router guys from a equipment vendor wanted to solve this locator ID separation in the network in routers where we said, well, you know, we think that's the best place because that's where the function is. It's at the network layer. But then when we built this list mobile node while we were doing the Android implementation, we said, what if we could put Lisp on a mobile platform? and have it do multi-homing. And this was the same time when um, uh, multi-path TCP came out um, and people were looking at doing these things. This was a pivotal time because this is when operating systems on cell phones were able to be upgraded quickly. So it wasn't a right. big deal to try to do this thing. Yeah. Um, so, so we played around with that. We, we, we went to Google in the 2009, 10 timeframe and showed them what we could do. And, and if they were interested in, and, you know, we had Android working and we were playing with it and it was really cool because now if you move into like, uh, let's see, 2012 timeframe, John Chambers at a Cisco live in San Diego in, in June of 2012 did this demo where we had Lisp running on an Android phone and then we had Lisp running in an N7000 top of rack router in a data center. And we had a VM moving from one top of rack to another running a video server. And we had the phone uh, moving on the stage at Cisco Live from Wi-Fi to LTE. And we were showing that the video was coming across, you know, from the VM to the cell phone and the connection was staying up even though the locators were changing. And we were showing the mapping database on the screen there and how it was changing as both ends of the connection were, were moving around. So this was something where, you know, Lyft started getting vendor support. We showed that, hey, there's a mobility use case here because of this level of interaction. Remember in this demo, the VM was assigned an EID and the cell phone was assigned an EID on its loopback interface. And the yeah. radio interfaces had the RLOC addresses. So as the RLOC addresses were changing, the Lisp code on the phone would just register the new mapping. And when the, the top of rack heard the VM move from one place to the other, he'd say, no, now I'm the locator for this EID. And then when he moves to another part, that other um, Lisp top of rack says, oh, now I'm the RLOC for this EID. And then that's how this system was get updated, right? And even back then, we didn't, we didn't have pub-sub protocols and event notification. We just made the TTLs like one. So it was basically the caches would time out. They would just make requests and they would get the new information. It was a very simple model. You know, that's kind of how things work in DNS today. If, we, yeah. if you want quick changes in DNS, you just keep TTLs really low. But now we're much more sophisticated on how to do handoffs and stuff. And we could talk about that later if we're not running out of time. Yeah. Or maybe we could do just a show on list, modern list operation at some point that might be kind of cool. Yeah. If yeah. We keep. So, so from there, at that point, um, now you are moving into what you say, 2009, 2010. So what's happening at that point? So I think you left Cisco somewhere, Mike, after that, right? Yeah. And then uh, started working right. with whispers or something like that. Yeah. 
So I actually left, you know, when that demo was done in 2012, there was a, a little problem because everybody thought that um, the industry didn't want to implement Lisp because they thought it was a, Lisco, a Cisco created solution and that it wasn't open. Of course, we had open source implementations. We had RFCs. By January of 2013, we published uh, two, four, six, seven RFCs, experimental RFCs. So it was certainly an open protocol, but nobody believed that. And there was this competitive situation that happened. So I thought that was the time. So I left in December 2012, thought that that was the time to go out and show VCs, startups, established companies um, that Lisp was really open and how this could help the network and how it really um, could open up opportunities for startup companies, you know, to do over the top services. You know, basically you go to a startup and say, you know, you could do build all these new services and you don't have to implement this long Cisco feature list. You don't have to compete line item, item by item. You could just put thing software or small boxes, commodity boxes on each side of something and offer something. And you know what happened from then SD-WAN was born, right? because <laughs> people yeah. did that sort of thing so back so what what happened like by the time you know i did a lispers.net implementation so in 2013 i i started a company my own company i'm the only one that works there a lispers.net implementation and i wanted to play with uh, go and python and stuff to see how it would work and so i said let me build a control plane and see if some other companies would want to use it um, and they could build fast data planes. So we had a really interesting demo in 2014. It was the same demo that we did with, in 2012 with John Chambers, you know, at Cisco Live. But now we used Arista, A10, Aruba, and HP. And what we did is we wanted to move the VM from an Arista top of rack switch to an A10 load balancer, while a Mac, a MacBook was moving from Wi-Fi on an Aruba access point to an HP ProCurve ethernet switch and we were showing the same type of demo and those four companies were using their data plane and they were using the lispers.net mapping system and we were showing how we had this this uh, mapping system work and this interoperability working for this mobility um, use case so um, you know so they some of them implemented their own stuff um, some implemented, um, took some of the lispers.net code that I had and ran it on top of their platform. Um, some r ran with the open source. So it was really th probably most likely three to three and a half implementations because some were homegrown. Um, and so that, that was really cool. That showed that people were interested. They believed in the level of indirection and that we were really validating things at this point. You know, in 2014, this is when the term overlay was born. Right. And and the reason is, is we saw overlays in the data center using VXLAN and NSX yeah. and Cisco was doing, you know, OTV, which was a form of an overlay. And then we saw Lisp were using VM motion over L3 overlays. And then ACI came a little bit later in 2015 ish sort of time yeah. frame. But so overlays were validated in the data center. And then we saw SD-WAN as overlays being validated um, in the control the plane. Yeah, yeah. White Air, yeah. But what, what we saw here was the same problem in both environments. There wasn't a holistic view because the companies that wanted to do SD-WAN were looking at wide area applications and the data center vendors were just focusing on their area of the network. And guess what? They all were either using VXLAN with no encryption because data center didn't need it or IPsec in SD-WAN because they needed encryption. And let's talk about the control plane. Well, the SD-WAN vendors, they each did their own 
control plane because they wanted to embrace this new thing called SD-WAN. And that was happening in the data center as well. But nobody had an interoperable SD-WAN. It was like saying, you know, Russ starts a router company and I start a router company and we say we both do IP. So if I send him IP packets on Ethernet, he can parse them and forward them. But there's one problem. He says he only supports ISDIS and no other protocol. And I say I support OSPF and no other protocol. This isn't going to help anybody. So what we see in the SD-WAN market is no interoperability whatsoever. We see that an SD-WAN overlay router cannot encapsulate to maybe an Arista or Cisco switch doing VXLAN. So there's, we still have this fragmented technology war going and, on because people are focusing on one versus the other. Yeah. And Go of ahead. course, according to the vendors, that's a feature, not a bug. Well, you know, the startups want to show their <laughs> They want to show yeah. their intellectual property. So they That's say, right. you yeah. know, why use something off the shelf, you know, but you know, you know what I tell people in response to that though, is like, then why did you implement BGP? Why don't you implement iDrip or something else or your own? Right. Thing? Um, you know, these are tools that you build products on top of, and then you build use cases on top of that. And that's where the differentiation is, right? All homes yeah. are built with hammers, right? You know, if one uses a sledgehammer to build it faster or, or prove that it's stronger, then they use a sledgehammer instead of the hammer, you know? Uh, but yeah. uh, that's the same thing that's going on here with the different type of overlays that, um, you know, VXLAN was just, you know, I, I always use the term, it's just an encapsulation, get over it, right? Joke. Yes, <laughs> that's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> So it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like VXLAN versus Geneve versus GRE versus, all right, yeah. guess what guys, it's tunnels. Yeah. And when, <laughs> and when these guys, and when these formats came out, we already had too many encapsulations, right? So, but what we learned in LISP was, is you, the service providers told us this, use UDP because you want to get through NATs. Use UDP because we want to load split traffic on lags in core routers because the best type of overlay is one that does not require any changes to the underlay. So you want to be able to work with old code running in these routers. So you want to encapsulate in UDP so and have entropy on the source port so you can load split traffic across the lag, the members of a lag in the core. So that's why we picked UDP and we picked it fixed length so feature creep wouldn't get in there and headers would get long, you know. And, that, and these are the sorts of problems with Geneve and even segment routing has is for every hop in segment routing, it's going to cost you 128 bits in the user's packet. The user wants his bytes, right? Yeah, so. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So cool. So that brings us up to the present, I think, pretty much, right, of what's going on um, with Lisp. So what we should do is because we don't have enough time to do a lot of deep dive into how it works and stuff is we should start another show. We should put it on our list to do another show to talk about deep dive. And, you know, like what you're using list for today, like you talked a little bit about some of the applications you've seen out there um, that people are using it for. So we should set that up, Jordan. We should set up a list deep dive show and talk about protocol and stuff. I agree. I have a lot of questions too. Like just, just about how some of the functionality works. I mean, I, I know that, you know, list by nature, because the fact that it's, you know, uh, database and, and, and query is reactive in nature, right? And from a, from a control plane perspective. And so when things move, how does that update happen? And how do we ensure that we don't spend time doing that lookup when we're trying to forward packets, right? Because that matters. And I think, I think um, you know, talking through those details would probably be good. Yeah, I think they're really useful. So we'll try to schedule another show for that. But Yeah, the um, more, of the, more of the how on Lisp and the new yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, exactly. if you want, I, yeah. I can just give you bullet items right now on the use cases that have been used in, in the sort of next generation yeah. thing. I, that would be yeah. good. I mean, let's take a couple minutes. So, so like, so where, yeah. where is it being used, you know, practically at the moment? I think, I think that's an interesting uh, piece of information. Right. Yeah. So most, m- most of the deployments are um, Cisco deployments. Um, Cisco hasn't been real proactive in advertising how they're being used, but there it's just a half a dozen use cases uh, using them as VPNs over the top. Um, so like at, at CP managed CP service or in the PE, depending on if the service provider wants control or they don't offer a managed service. So VPNs, multi-homing, lowering the, making the routing table smaller. Those are the traditional use. The traditional problem statement that we started the show with is uh, what Cisco is using it for VM mobility in the data center or anything that moves. So, you know, move um, devices that are on a high speed train going down and you have these roadside units that are LISP XTRs that are doing NCAP and DCAP, planes that are flying over base stations. These are things that Cisco has, has been doing. So that's generally, we call it EID mobility use case. VM mobility is the EID mobility use case. Those right. are the existing um, use cases that are being deployed now. The next generation use cases that, that I'm focusing on right now is of course, can we simplify the 5G next generation core network by using an overlay? Should we remove GTP tunnels or keep them there? Um, everything's gonna be virtualized. Um, do we need a mapping system there? So 5G is um, an area of focus. Of course, how do you keep track of a billion IoT devices? Do they all need to talk to each other? Clearly, they can't be pushed. Um, clearly, their addressing is not going to be based on topology because there's other important things like security. So we think that they're going to be IPv6 addressed. We think they're going to be crypto EIDs or hashes of public keys that have to maybe change as um, private keys get lost or you get reprovisioned or whatever. These things clearly can't be routable in the underlying now- network. So we need a level of indirection to solve that. And then the final use case is um, the cryptocurrency guys, when they look at the network, they think it's this BitTorrent peer-to-peer network. And they don't realize that they're very far away from routers and switches and fiber and copper and stuff. And so how can we make, how can overlays help the cryptocurrency market? Now it goes both ways. Um, Can the overlays make use of blockchain? Another question, but we know that the blockchain can maybe make use of the overlays. We want miners and wallets to move around. We believe miners will be on cell phones and that they have to have long lived connections. And as they disconnect and reconnect, we want the crypto application to stay up and run. So those are the three kind of next generation or current generation IoT, 5G, and cryptocurrencies. Questions, reactions? Yeah, no, no, cool. That's really cool stuff. So yeah, we'll have to bring you back on. We'll do that. I think we'll arrange it. I don't know where we're where we are in recording shows right now, but uh, I'm sure that we'll figure it out. Jordan has some point in the future. Yes, (laughs) some point in the future. No commitment. Sometime sometime between magical. Tomorrow and two years from now, I'm sure we'll. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I'll probably yeah, still great. be working on it. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you the next yeah. next generation, right? Perfect. Yeah, that's right. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Dino, for coming on and talking to us about the history of um, Lisp. So, where can people find you? Lispers.net, correct? Is there another place yeah. besides that? Uh, www.lispers.net is my website. It just basically has information about the technology. 
Um, you know, I'm a nonprofit engineering consulting company. So I'm just, I do a lot of pro bono stuff. And so there's a lot of pointers there that you can look up things. And you don't yeah. blog or anything, right? Or social media? Uh, I, I actually blog on, unfortunately, I chose, fortunately or unfortunately, you'd make the decision. I chose um, Facebook and I have a group called Lisp-Routing. And there's probably now about um, nearly a thousand um, members on it. And we always post things like, did you know Lisp can do this? Um, you know, when there's IETF or any vendors that are doing things, we, we, um, we do announcements on there. So, you know, all are welcome to join. Russ, you might be on it already. I'm not sure. I don't have a Facebook account. Yeah, yeah Russ doesn't oh, do Facebook. Okay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's, so. it's a long story. It's <laughs> okay. But there's a pointer on my website to the Facebook group too. There's a LinkedIn group as well. Um, and um, there's peop there's going to be various vendors that are going to tweet to pu push their products based on Lisp as well. So awesome. More to come. Okay, cool. Great. Um, and Jordan, where can people, I'll, I'll actually start with Donald. Donald, where can people find you? Because <laughs> you don't blog. So I'm just going to beat you up every time I say this. Every show. So Donald, where can people find your blog? Is there a subtle <laughs> here that I should be blogging? <laughs> yeah, you can find me out. Me, not you, Sharp, on Twitter. Okay. And Jordan, you're at, uh, goodness, jordanmartin.net, right? Very original. Yes. Jordan very Martin. original. Very wow. original. Uh, Twitter is uh, at BC Jordo. Uh, I'm on all of the other places as well. I do have a Facebook account, but I don't really do a lot there from a networking perspective. But uh, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, all those places, obviously here at Network Collective. Yep. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me at Network Collective and Rule11.tech. So uh, thanks for this, Dino, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, thanks for having me, guys.